I'd like to say good morning to each of you here today. I'm glad to be here, and I hope you're glad to be here in service to the Lord. You can see on the screen in front of you the title of the message this morning. And so I want to challenge you today to grow in Christ. You can see the title on the screen, Growth Journey from Privilege to Need. And I'll, do, I'll be discussing that aspect of privilege and need here in just a few moments. I want to draw your attention to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18, where here we have the parting exhortation from the Apostle Peter. At least the, the last words that we have that he had penned in his epistle. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse number 18. The Bible says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so I challenge you this day to consider your spiritual growth, your spiritual development, your walk with Christ. And so Peter, he exhorts us to grow. Brethren, if, if Peter and if the Bible at large can exhort us to grow as a command, as an exhortation, then the possibility of growth really does exist. Peter knows a lot about growth. Peter knows a lot about failure. He knows a lot about trial. He knows a lot about rejection. And Peter is coming from a place of experience when he provides this exhortation to us in Scripture. I think we would all agree that Christians everywhere should be seeking to grow spiritually. To seek to grow, to develop, to transform. I think many times the desire is there for growth. I want to develop. I want to transform my life. Sometimes we, we share in that desire. You might be thinking, yes, I want to grow in these ways. I want to grow in stability. I want to grow and, and mature or mature in Christ. And so sometimes, yes, the desire is there, but the actual growth is absent. Why? Why is that? And so this morning, I want to take a, a, a solid look at Scripture to, to see perhaps if we can answer that question. We'll be spending quite a bit of time in Scripture this morning, specifically in Mark chapter 10, and we will reach that point in just a moment. I want to submit before your consideration this morning that one of the reasons we do not grow spiritually, that we do not grow in Christ is because we do not prioritize it. We don't make that the pinnacle of our lives from day to day. We're consumed by making a living, by education, by a number of factors that have major influence on us each and every day. <clears throat> I would also submit before your consideration this morning that perhaps we do not grow as we want as we as individuals want to see ourselves grow, because we're not really sure where we are spiritually speaking. <clears throat> and if we do not know where we are spiritually speaking, then how do we know where and how to grow? How do we, how do we move forward? 
And so first, I would say that we need to address a very real temptation that we all face, and that is simply just putting it off. I don't know how to grow. I don't know the best way to go about this growth. Not really sure if I should be. I think I'm ready to rock and roll as a Christian. And so we we tend to put that off. And that could be for a number of reasons. It could be just simply because of procrastination. Well, you know, I grew a little bit last year. I'll grow a little bit more here in just a little while. So, So let me put it off. Maybe it's, it's because we're dealing with times of distress, legitimate hardship, and we, we can convince ourselves that, you know, life is just challenging. It's too difficult right now. I have other priorities, or I, I, my concentration is, is broken. I'm exhausted. And so I'll get back into spiritual, spiritual growth when things calm down. And so we take a break. We take a break from that growth. And so this morning I want to challenge you, as an individual, to grow in Christ. It's something that I, I think about quite often, something that I've had to, to challenge myself in recent years to grow. You know, we spend a lot of time and energy and effort plotting and charting our physical maturation, right? Several of you, if you have kiddos at home, you might actually have a wall or a door jam where you're marking their height. One of my nephews, who will remain nameless, he's not here today, so I guess I can talk about him. He is, maybe obsessed is too strong of a word, but he's really interested in growing taller. And so he uses me as a springboard. Let's see how much I've grown today. Have I exceeded your height, Uncle Zoll? And that's fine. We, we should be at least somewhat concerned about our physical maturation and our growth. And we spend a lot of time and energy dealing with that. How much time in our day-to-day lives as Christians, as adults, do we devote to spiritual growth in Christ? I want for a moment to consider uh, a, a few of the recipients in the book of Hebrews and, and to consider a, a couple of examples this morning, uh, not just in Hebrews, but also in Ephesians, uh, of these groups of people, these individuals who seemingly just stopped growing for whatever the reason. They just stopped growing. <clears throat> and so I would invite your attention to Hebrews chapter 2 in the first four verses. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip. We could stop there. But the writer continues in verse number 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Verse number 4 says, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. One of the letter's major points to the Hebrews, and not just in this passage, but to the Hebrews at large, was to encourage these individuals back to faithfulness in Christ. To, to begin growing again. 
And we see that splattered right here in the passage that we just read. You can pick out a few key, a few key words that would give it away. Starting with verse number one, we need to give the more earnest heed. We need to make effort unless we let them slip is what it says in verse number one. So I'll use a bit of a metaphor for just a moment, and that is my goatee. And so I'll just apologize in advance for the, for the crude metaphor. But uh, a, a few folks have asked me, uh, I guess when they were desiring to grow facial hair, I suppose, how often I had to trim my goatee. What, what's, what's the timeline look like for you? And, and so my response honestly was, I have to trim it twice a week or it just it gets out of control. Right, It grows without my having to think about it. And in that sense, if I let it just grow haphazardly, yeah, I can let it slip. But the reverse of that is true, and that's very true in our day-to-day walk of life. If we neglect so great salvation, as we read in verse number 3 of the passage, if we neglect to, to prioritize our walk with Christ, our growth in Christ, yes, that can slip. <clears throat> We also read in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, you can see these verses on the screen. The Bible says, Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. That should be a dead giveaway right there. Are you dull of hearing this morning? Are you listening this morning? Are you listening for the voice of the chief shepherd? The Bible continues in Hebrews 5, verse 12, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so the Bible is saying right here, Hebrews, you, you individuals, uh, individual Hebrews here to whom the writer writes, your growth is stunted. That's basically what he's saying. At this point in your, in your walk with Christ, Hebrews, you should be teachers. You should be leaders. You should be guides. You should be mentors. You should be the ones taking charge of teaching others, and yet they were not in that place, spiritually speaking. The writer, he says, you're basically babes in Christ because you're unskillful in the word of righteousness. We understand that metaphor. We understand that babies, newborn babies, they need milk. They need milk for quite a while. And so that varies from child to child, but all newborn babies require milk. They, they don't have teeth. We, we understand that. So they cannot chew and consume meat. And so spiritually speaking, what the writer does is, is he analogizes these Hebrews, or at least many of these individuals, to whom he writes as being babes in Christ, being unskillful in Christ, being un- immature in Christ. And so this is an appeal to grow. And we see this again and again and again in Scripture. As a result of this lack of growth, when difficulties came to these Christians, 
they had a much more difficult time dealing with them than before. I want to draw your attention to the book of Revelation now, chapter 2 and verses 4 to 5, to consider another group of Christians, those, those Christians at Ephesus, the Ephesians. If you were here last Wednesday night, <clears throat> pardon if you were here last Wednesday night, you heard our brother Greg deliver a message uh, that included that passage that we're considering here this morning. And he talked a lot about the Ephesians and the warning to that group of Christians. And so we see here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, the Bible says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. The writer says twice to repent. The writer said, this is a warning. And so if you consider what's going on, these were not just stagnated Christians. They had gone the opposite direction. Now they were regressing. The Bible points that out. The Bible says there that they have left their first love. And then in verse number 5, they are fallen. That's a regression, brethren. That, that's a, a backwards progression. That's going in the wrong direction. And this passage shows the results of Christians who just decided... I'm going to stop growing or stop prioritizing my spiritual growth. They had actually regressed. And that's the warning that we have. This is very real. And this is directly applicable to us in the 21st century. We see that here in the pages of the precious Word of God. You know, the Apostle Paul warned those Ephesians about those dangers. If we rewind in Scripture and we go back to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, we see a couple of, of, of verses that Paul uh, uses to warn the, this group of Christians here about taking a break from growing. Read with me here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. The Bible says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Verse number 14 gives us the negative. We need to grow so that we're no longer children. We understand that physically. Almost by default, we're growing on a, on a daily basis from infant to adult. We understand that. It's, it must be much more purposeful in our adult lives, especially in our daily walk with Christ. Staying immature is going to cause us problems, and Paul is alluding to that right here in these two verses. Paul says you're going to be tricked and deceived by Satan, and it's going to be easy for him, right? You're going to be deceived and tricked by others. You're going to be tossed around in your life like waves. Every teaching, every doctrine is going to knock you down like a strong wind. You'll be deceived by people's scheming and craftiness. And what does Paul say here? And especially in this chapter of Ephesians, that unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, and obviously maturity in Christ will stabilize your faith and stabilize your life. I want to ask you this morning, do you feel stable in your growth in Christ? Or do things feel difficult for you? 
If things feel difficult for you, it might be because you need to prioritize growth. Growing in Christ. God tells us why right here in these two verses. Sometimes those difficulties are a result of our not growing in faith and knowledge and maturity. And so to put this in the language of the chapter that we're we're considering here in Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says you're not walking worthy of your calling. You're not walking according to the purpose God has given to you and given to me. Satan isn't going to throw you around when you're grounded in your faith. He's going to blow a strong hot wind on your life, but you'll be like a tree firmly planted. And then in verse number 15, we have the more positive goal. It should be abundantly clear when Paul says that you grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, maturing into Christ brings that spiritual growth. We grow into him. We grow up into him is what the Bible says. What's the catalyst of that growth? What propels that growth? What moves you forward? The Apostle Paul says there's one thing that can move us forward, and that's speaking the truth in love. Let's be honest. Let's, let's have open communication. Let's do it in a loving way, but let's speak the truth. Let's get it out in the open and let's move forward. And this is one of the reasons we should be together. So that we can speak the truth and love to each other. So that we can affect that change that we're all looking for. And that's that growth in Christ. I want to invite your attention to the book of Mark chapter 10. As I stated a moment ago, we'll be spending quite a bit of time here this morning. And, and indeed, for the remainder of our time together, I want to, to draw your attention to the book of Mark chapter 10. There are several short stories that I want us to consider. I think they're linked and I think they, they illustrate this growth that I'm talking about this morning that you see on the screen in front of you. A growth journey, specifically within the confines of privilege and need. And so, as you're, as you're getting to Mark chapter 10, if you find that on your, your Bible application, or if you've got a hard copy Bible out in front of you and you're flipping the pages there, uh, certainly I invite your attention to follow along. We'll be reading this, this passage this morning. But I want to provide some geographical context of the chapter. And so, a literal journey is underway. We are in the third year of Jesus' earthly ministry. The third year. And a literal journey is underway. Jesus and his followers have left Galilee. They left Capernaum. They've made their way by walking down to the region of Judea. And the Bible says in the very first verse of Mark chapter 10 that they were on the farther side of Jordan. And so that's the geographical context. And I thought I had a map, and apparently I, I did not include that. You probably have a map in, in the back of your Bible, or you can find that in the Bible application. You can, you can trace that journey from Galilee all the way down to the farther side of Jordan, as the Bible says. And so what they do is, and we read this in Mark chapter 10, Jesus and his followers, not just his disciples, but a whole company of people, whole groups of people are following him. And they're going through all these other little towns and villages. They're going to pass through Jericho here in just a moment on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus has a destination in mind. Jesus has a goal in mind. Jesus will be dying on the cross for the sins of mankind before too long. But Jericho functions as a kind of bridge into the next stage in the journey of Jesus. 
Jericho is where the pilgrims traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem would cross the Jordan into Judea. You know, we might wonder about the history of this city in the Bible. You might recall from reading Old Testament Scripture that Jericho was the very first town captured by another Jesus, Joshua, on his way to doing the divinely ordained task of obtaining the land of Palestine for Israel. And so here in Mark chapter 10, we see this other Joshua, Jesus Christ. He's on his way to Jerusalem to obtain redemption for the people whom God will save. And so as we consider the context geographically, there's a lot of movement. They're literally on a journey. But there's another more metaphorical journey taking place in the passage in Mark chapter 10. And so I want us to consider Jesus and the early disciples and the growth journey that the disciples illustrate. And I want to look at that as a model of growth. A model of growth that we can apply to us today in the 21st century. And so, yes, we understand that the disciples' journey of growth was in many ways tumultuous, filled with failures and faults. And we'll see some of that in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Okay, there's the map. I finally found it. There it is. You can see the trajectory of Jesus and his disciples way up there from Galilee, Capernaum, or Capernaum, however you want to pronounce that, all the way down through the uh, the coast of Jordan and all the way down eventually to Jerusalem. And you can see almost just at the very bottom of that map the location, the alleged location, where Jesus is going to heal a blind man. And that's going to play also into uh, the message this morning. That's that's a part of the message this morning as well. And so I want us to consider, before we even start reading any of this, I want us to consider a few things uh, about Jesus' teaching and about the growth model that we encounter in Mark chapter 10. So Jesus was always deliberate. He was always intentional about what he taught and how he taught. And so I want us to keep in mind a few items here that comprise this teaching or growth model. Number one, Jesus brings the disciples to a place or to a situation where people had real needs. Real, everyday, life-changing needs. And some of those situations, many of those situations, show a problem, they show a solution, and then they show an action. And in some cases, a call to action. In some cases, an assignment that Jesus gives them. Number two, Jesus creates an environment conducive to learning. Number three, Jesus uses specific, intentional teaching methods. The purpose of this sermon is not to explore all of those teaching methods. We'll we'll look at two uh, of his teaching methods here in the passage this morning. But his teaching comes in many forms. Number four, Jesus shares truth that challenges the disciples and challenges them in ways that, that astonishes them as we read. Number five, Jesus connects his disciples to God and then to each other. And so that's the model. And so if we get into... The book of Mark here, and we begin in verse number 17. We want to read a a rather lengthy passage, I suppose. We'll read down to verse number 31. And so I have them in increments on the screen in front of you, so if you want to follow along that way, that's fine. But I certainly invite you uh, to follow along in your Bibles this morning. And so we're starting here, not quite in the middle, 
uh, of this journey. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 17 down to verse number 20, and then we'll, we'll continue. The Bible says, and when he was gone forth into the way. And I just want to pause right there and point out, we're talking about Jesus going on a literal journey into the way on his way to Jerusalem. And yet we know from scripture that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. The Bible says there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Picking up in verse number 21, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That's important. Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away, grieved, for he had great possessions. In verse 23, Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. That was a direct response to what Peter had to say about leaving all and having followed Jesus. So we encounter this first and foremost here, this this passage about Jesus and what we commonly refer to as the story of or the parable of the rich young ruler. And so we have our growth model in mind. And so we're talking about the rich young ruler here. And I think you can see the growth model and then the rich young ruler column as well. And so I'll I'll read that aloud. I've read the growth model already, the five items that comprise uh, the growth model that Jesus deliberately used on many occasions. And what we see playing out, we can literally trace step by step that, that specific model, step by step in the parable and the story of the rich young ruler. And so if you're having trouble seeing that, I apologize for the font size, but I'll read that. Number one, starting, Jesus brings the disciples to a place, to a situation where people had real needs. 
So let's pause right there. The rich young ruler, you might be thinking, the rich young ruler, he had a real need. To the rich young ruler, it was a real need. To the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus in sincerity. You know, many of the rulers, many of the wealthy in the days of Jesus, the lawyers, the Pharisees, the publicans, those kinds of folks, they would approach Jesus not out of sincerity or out of a desire for mercy, but rather to try to trip him up in his speech, to try to get him to make a definitive statement so that they could use against him. And that's not what this this man does. He approaches Jesus, I believe, and this is me speculating here, but I believe he approaches Jesus with sincerity. He wants to know how to inherit eternal life. That's, That's a concept that's not foreign from Scripture. We can read about that in other places in the Bible. And so to the rich young ruler, to this man, his problem is, I need eternal life. What a great problem to have. What a great problem to recognize. But if we consider the interaction, the exchange between this man and Jesus, what Jesus points out after the fact, and you need to see this in the passage that we just read, Jesus really says his problem is not inheriting eternal life. His problem really, his most uh, prioritized problem, is his trust in riches. How do we know that? Because we see his, his action. Jesus says, here's the solution, sacrifice, follow me, self-denial, surrender. And what is his response? His action is to reject Jesus. The Bible says that he went away, grieved. That's a rejection. Jesus says, plainly, here it is. Here's what you do. And the rich young ruler says, no. Number two, you can see on the right-hand column, Jesus creates an environment conducive to learning. And that's why I say that this phrase, he loved him, is so important. You know, we read that expression in Scripture quite a, quite a few times, not excessively, but a few times, as it relates to, to other people uh, of Jesus' acquaintance and family. He loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, right? John the writer, the gospel writer, likes to remind his readers that, you know, there's an apostle whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved everybody. And Jesus here in Mark's gospel, Mark goes out of his way to say that Jesus, looking upon him, beholding him is what the Bible says, loved him. He loved the man who greeted him with this deference. He's kneeling before Jesus' feet. And he's asking about eternal life. Number three... Jesus uses two prominent teaching methods throughout the book of Mark, uh, specifically in Mark chapter 10, and those two are conversations and questions. And you see that. It's abundantly clear. Jesus has a conversation with this man, an elaborate conversation, a lengthy conversation. But he also uses questions to elicit a reaction, to elicit faith, to elicit a response. And so what Jesus does, he asks deliberate questions of this man. Number four, in that column, you see that Jesus shares truth that challenges the disciples. And if I summarize this, I would simply say that what Jesus is sharing with his disciples is that people cannot save themselves. They need a Savior. And this young man is on the edge, on the verge of coming to that realization. Jesus says people need to surrender themselves. They need self-denial. They need to repent. People cannot save themselves. That's the truth 
that challenges the disciples. We read there how astonished they were more than once. In fact, the last time we read that expression, they were astonished out of measure. They didn't know what to make of that. And number five, Jesus connects his disciples to God and to each other. And I'll pinpoint a a couple of of excerpts from our text here. The Bible says here in our passage this morning, for with God, all things are possible. Jesus directs his disciples vertically first to God. Where is your focus? Where do you place your attention? It should be on God. The Bible says to seek God and His righteousness first. Matthew 6.33 So for with God all things are possible. That's an attempt for on Jesus' behalf to connect His disciples to God. And then the Bible says here in our passage, But He shall receive an hundredfold now in this time and in the world to come eternal life. Remember Jesus' response to Peter. Peter, wait a minute. You are going to receive. You are going to be rewarded. And he connects his disciples to each other. And we read that in our passage this morning. There's something else I want to bring before your consideration as we consider the story of the rich young ruler. You know, we tend to focus on his wealth. We tend to hear sermons, which are, which are great. And we need to hear sermons about not to love money. Uh, the Bible bears that out. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil. And so you've probably heard that many times over. And so typically when, when someone presents a story about this parable, the rich young ruler, they're, they're tending to focus on the, the dangers of, of trusting in riches and loving wealth. And that's fine. And so if you look at the contrast here that I'm presenting, we understand the rich young ruler's wealth. We have a little help from Luke. We have a little help from Matthew to round out, to fill in some of the blanks that that Mark has. Mark, of course, the shortest gospel out of all four of them. And so uh, looking to those those sections in Luke and Matthew will help uh, fill in the blanks there. We call him rich, we call him young, we call him a ruler because that's what the Bible calls him. So I'm not making that up. It's not just something that some publisher slapped onto the Bible and said, "That's, that's a great catchphrase, let's use that. He was called rich. He was called young. He was called a ruler. And so you see that. A, B, and C in the left-hand column. He did. He had riches. And so he had wealth. He had possessions. Jesus identifies that he has possessions in Mark chapter 10. Letter B. He had authority. I don't know if he inherited that. I don't know if if he obtained that through other means. But that reveals he had a position. He had status. He had power, perhaps. Maybe all of that. Let her see he had youth. The Bible calls him a young man. The Bible refers to him as a youth. Obviously, he was an adult. Obviously, he was old enough to be in a position of authority. So young might be a relative term there. But I want us to consider, in contrast to that, his metaphorical poverty. And so if you look at the far right-hand column there, you see letter A, he lacked the reasoning. He lacked uh, the self-awareness, if that's what you want to call it. And you can see that at the very beginning of verse number 21 in the passage that we read. Jesus said, you lack something. And he was seemingly unaware of that. I would call that a lack of self-awareness. And so Jesus says, go and sell. And that reveals his lack of self-awareness. There's something missing in your life. Letter B, he lacked the relationship. And we know that again from verse 21. Jesus says, follow me. 
And that indicates, that's obvious, that reveals that he was not already following Jesus. And let her see he lacked the repentance. The Bible says he went away. He reveals that he didn't turn to Jesus. I think that expression really summarizes that young man. You know, we don't have a written record of Jesus' passing this way ever again. This might have been his only opportunity to repent and to follow Jesus. We don't know. I'm speculating. But this might have been his only opportunity. The Bible says he went away. He didn't turn his life over to Jesus. He went away grieved, the Bible says, but sorry is not sorrowful. I can think of an apostle who had a pain of mind rather than a change of mind, Judas Iscariot. Pain of mind and pain of heart is not the same as a change of mind, change of heart. Jesus is calling him and calling us to repentance. Note Jesus' words here in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 17. This is uh, a comment about another church there in Asia. But the Bible says in verse number 17 of Revelation 3, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. And we see that in the story of this man here. He didn't realize just how poverty-stricken he was, spiritually speaking. He didn't realize how blind he really was. And that's a major contrast to Bartimaeus when we reach that story this morning. You know, earlier Jesus taught his disciples about the importance of faithfulness with regard to money. Jesus at one point, he says in, in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus encouraging that we hate people? Of course not. That word hate is translated that way. It simply means to love less. Again, prioritize. I mean, he's, Jesus is not encouraging anybody to hate any more than, than what he encourages uh, that rich young ruler to do here. Jesus also said in in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Are we similar to the rich young ruler? You know, when we read these these stories in, in Mark chapter 10, we want to identify with Bartimaeus. And in many ways, we want to identify with those disciples, those apostles. But how similar are we to this man? How much more like him are we right now? Also in the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, the Bible says again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Luke 9, verse 24, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. 
Now the disciples of Jesus have an object lesson to learn from. An actual wealthy man, fabulously wealthy. Can he, will he, become a disciple? And so Jesus' words are consistent in Mark chapter 10 as it's been consistent in these other passages that I presented to you here. You know, I want to pause again and I want to, to just recall to your mind that the culture of the day in Jesus' day was very different than our culture, at least in some respects. You know, the disciples came from a culture that viewed wealth as a reward for good and moral behavior, prosperity, especially outward manifestations of prosperity. They, they showed that you had favor with God. They showed that you were following God's commands and they showed you were pleasing to God. Also, inheriting eternal life was a common idea in the New Testament in the time of Jesus. And just like the rich young ruler, just like the disciples of old, many people today think that eternal life is something that, that we can earn, something that, that we're merited. And as the disciples observe in this encounter, they begin to question their own privilege and they wrestle with the demands of discipleship. And that's where I take the title of the message. It's a growth journey. But I've encapsulated that in the context and the confines of, yes, Mark chapter 10, but also in the confines of this idea of privilege to need. I want you to think for just a moment, the disciples, the, the apostles for sure, were with Jesus for three years. And to us, that may not sound like a long time. But they were with Jesus for three years. And so they, they were, were learning from him on a daily basis. They could touch him. They could reach out and, and they could give him a, a big bear hug. And, and they could learn from him and they could see how he modeled discipleship. And they could see and, and observe his, his interactions, his dialogue, his behavior with other people. They had that luxury. They had that privilege. I'm not using privilege today as the way many in our world use it. But in a sense, yes, they had a position of privilege already. They were with the Lord and Savior of mankind. And sometimes I wonder how much they valued that. And what we see here with the demonstration of the rich young ruler is a man who also had privilege. He was wealthy, had possessions, youth. I mean, everything and anything that people in, in the 21st century would, would go for, would shoot after, this man had. A position of privilege. But by the time we get to the end of the chapter, by the time we get to our third story this morning, I want us to notice the paradigm shift from privilege to legitimate need. From a position where, where like the disciples, were had this luxury of being with Jesus and they didn't have to worry for anything. They had want for nothing. And even when Jesus sent them out two by two, when Jesus sent them out to teach and to preach, they didn't have want for anything. And then that's going to shift. That's going to transform in their lives. And so this encounter forces us today to confront the dangers of privilege. The rich young ruler's reluctance reveals human beings' innate attachment to worldly comforts, exposes the challenge of letting go for the sake of God's kingdom. And so true discipleship, as Jesus tells us here, True discipleship requires sacrificing our worldly privileges and embracing humility. Jesus calls us to abandon the security of our material wealth and prioritize our, devo our devotion and service to others. He's not saying wealth is a sin. He's not saying that everybody's one thing should be to go 
and and live a life of, of poverty. But for this man, he had an emotional, almost spiritual attachment to these possessions. And it hindered him from following Jesus. And I think that's what we should take away from the story here of the rich young ruler and from these other stories as well. We see barriers. That's a motif that continually presents itself in this chapter, in the story of the journey of the disciples' growth. And so for us today, salvation is not based on something that we do. It's based on what Christ has done for us. We cannot save ourselves. Even going down into the watery grave of baptism, yes, I can go into that, but I'm submitting to the operation of God. Christ paid it all. Salvation is not working, not earning eternal life. It's resting on the work of another, even the Lord Jesus Christ. We can read in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Something else that I, I would say applies to us from the story is that vain religion is man trying to bring himself to God by some human effort, by good works, by ritualism, by traditionalism, by sacraments, whatever you want to name it. Salvation is Christ bringing us to God on the basis of what he did for us. The Bible says here in 1 Peter 3 and 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And I think something else that we can take away from the story about the rich young ruler is that God's holiness utterly condemns the best man. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 3 and 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. God's grace freely justifies. We read in Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I want to move on in our, in our text this morning, Mark chapter 10, to the story of James and John. We know a little bit more about James and John than some of the other apostles. They might some people might argue they, they had come from a well-to-do family simply because we read about their father having the ability to hire servants. And so maybe they were accustomed to a different standard of living. But it's, it's within the realm of possibility that their ambitions had been kindled by that social superiority of, of their family. Uh, or in the context of our message this morning, Mark chapter 10, perhaps they were influenced by the rich young ruler. They were witness to that exchange between Jesus and that man. And Jesus knew how naive these disciples were, how deeply they misunderstood his mission and purpose on earth. Despite his very recent attempts to tell them differently, they still think, his disciples still think, that Jesus' Messiahship is going to land him in a place of political power when they get to Jerusalem. So they make their request, and I want to invite your attention here to the book of Mark, chapter 10, picking up in verse number 35. And we'll read down to verse 45. The Bible says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. Let me pause right there, brethren, and say, that's pretty bold. Whatever we want. Come on, genie. Grant us our wish. That's what it sounds like to me. In verse 36, Jesus was so patient. He said unto them, What would ye? 
that I should do for you. They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. I don't think they realized what they were asking. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other ten apostles, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But so shall it not be among you, But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, your servant. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The rather shocking aspect of this ambitious request is in the apparent lack of understanding on their part as to who Jesus really was and and what kind of kingdom he had come to establish. They prefaced their request for positions of superiority by inferring that they were deserving of anything that they asked. Jesus understands what they don't. That when they do come to a point of grasping the significance of his life and death, they will indeed share in the sufferings of the cup and the baptism as they follow the way of Jesus because the way of Jesus is the way of suffering. I would draw before your consideration Hebrews chapter 5 and 8. The Bible says of Jesus, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And we know from reading scripture, the book of Acts, that James and John indeed subjected themselves to the adversities that befell all known followers of Jesus in the first century. They did drink of that same spiritual cup. We read in Acts chapter 12 that Herod would have James, the brother of John, executed. John would live a longer life, but he'd wind up in exile on the Isle of Patmos. We've been reading about that on Wednesday nights. I want to pause and I want to bring before your consideration the magnitude of their privilege that they seemingly do not understand. You see, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 22, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Jesus is telling his disciples this when he was with his disciples. That's a future tense. That's a future promise. You're not hated yet, disciples, but you will be. You're not hated yet, but you will be. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. So again, I would present to you the contrast of the growth model in the story of James and John here. So number one, Jesus brings the disciples to a situation where people had real needs. To James and John, their problem in 1A was that they they needed a special position. They've been with Jesus for almost three full years. They've witnessed his miracles. They've witnessed the dialogue that he exchanges with people in conversation. They think they've grown. And so they desire a a special position of authority. What is their real problem? Looks to me like it's self-interest. Looks to me like it's a bit of pride. 
And Jesus' solution here, as we've read, is to serve. What is their action? What is their reaction? What is their response? The Bible does not tell us here in this passage. We don't know. I wish I knew. But we know how the other apostles reacted to that. We, we see how they responded to that. The Bible says here in Mark chapter 10, they were displeased. They were indignant. They were upset. They were frustrated. They were envious. They were jealous. They probably scoffed at James and John. You Boanerges brothers always wanting to call down fire from heaven and now you're seeking a position of authority. You know? Number four, Jesus shares truth that challenges the disciples. Jesus spells it out. True greatness is service. It's servitude. Number five, Jesus connects his disciples to God and to each other. A couple of excerpts point that appoint the disciples to God and to each other, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And if you read Matthew's and Luke's versions of this story, you read that God is involved in that. That's the reference there. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. So here, in this in the story of James and John, we've got self-serving attitudes all around. We've got James and John, two of the closest disciples to Jesus. We've got self-serving attitudes by the ten disciples separately. And then Jesus' mention of the Gentiles who, who exercise authority. We've got self-serving attitudes all around. But brethren, what about us? What about us today in the 21st century? Do I ever demonstrate this kind of self-serving attitude? What do we do or say or feel that shows we have this same kind of self-centeredness? Does it display itself in how we treat others? Does it display itself in our life, in the home, at the workplace, or at school, or even in the church? And so I challenge you this morning. I, I don't know your hearts and minds, obviously. You know. You know your, yourself, or you should. You know your own mind and heart. God knows. You know how you, how you speak and how you act when you're, when you're not here in the assembly. And I challenge you. I challenge myself to see if we're like James and John. <clears throat> We experience all kinds of suffering in our lives. Health difficulties, broken relationships, anxiety, grief, loss, financial hardships, persecution for our faith in some cases. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I have all the answers for why we, we encounter this kind of suffering. The reality of suffering is seemingly met with a powerful worldly illusion of ease and comfort. And that is what we want. We, we, we don't want persecution. We want comfort. We, we want, we want to, to get along and go along. And even subconsciously, sometimes we try to protect ourselves from pain, sometimes at all costs. And when we look at Jesus' life and suffering and we read passages such as this one, or Hebrews chapter 5 and 8, we see that suffering, especially suffering for the sake of others, purifies and shapes us to be more Christ-like. That is what the name Christian means, to be Christ-like. And in our final story this morning, I appreciate your patience with me. I want to consider briefly the story of blind Bartimaeus. <clears throat> and so I would invite your attention to the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 46. We'll read to the end of the chapter here. The Bible says, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus... Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. 
But he cried the more, a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. We understand blind Bartimaeus is blind. He's not just a little blind, he's completely blind. He's totally blind. He's never seen the look of love uh, or kindness in another person's face. When, when there's something, an obstruction in the road that he has to traverse, he doesn't see it. He couldn't see a ditch. He couldn't see the low-hanging branch. He's unaware of the angry dog unless the angry dog growls and barks. And when the night sky above Jericho was bright with a million stars, it was still all darkness to him. He's known by his disability. The Bible calls him blind Bartimaeus. He was blind. He's also known by his poverty. The Bible says he was impoverished. He was sitting on the roadside literally begging for alms. Perhaps this was not of his doing. Perhaps he was born this way. What does the Bible say about him? This man was completely dependent upon those who would toss him a few coins so he could buy enough food to survive another day. He had nothing to sell. He really, the only, I mean, if you want to call it a possession, his cloak was his only possession. He was marginalized and sidelined. He was on the side of the road, literally, like those who beg at the street corners today, except he's legitimately begging. He got used to the idea that he really wasn't important, that he had no value. I imagine in that time, most people looked at him with disdain if they looked his way at all. He might have been viewed as being stupid. He might have been viewed as being ignorant. He might have been viewed as a nuisance to society. People around him didn't see his struggle. In fact, they didn't care. And not only that, in our story here, the followers, the company of Jesus, try to silence him. They try to keep him quiet when he calls out for Jesus. Certainly, Bartimaeus is marginalized. Certainly, he's on the outside of it all. He knows it. The people around Jesus know it. That does not stop Bartimaeus from crying out to the one who can help him. And Jesus listens. Jesus hears that cry of this man's heart and this man's mouth. You know, Jesus is on the road. He's got a sense of urgency about him, a sense of purpose. He knows, I've, I've got to be in Jerusalem. I'm, I'm making my way, even if the other people don't want to, don't want to acknowledge that. And yet, what does Jesus do here in the text? He stops, literally in his tracks, the Bible says. He stood still, is what the Bible says. And he's responsive to Bartimaeus' cry. Unlike the crowds, he doesn't silence him, but he rather beckons him, calls him to follow him. It's in this cry of recognition who Jesus is and the power that Jesus has to save and to heal Bartimaeus calls him the son of David. That carries a lot of meaning. This is Jesus, the son of of David, designating him as the promised royal descendant. What's the first word out of his mouth, though? It's not son of David. He calls out for Jesus. Jesus. Recognizing him as Savior, as the merciful. And what does Bartimaeus cry out? Have mercy on me. He doesn't say, Jesus, restore my sight. 
Jesus, give me eyes to see. He says, have mercy on me. And I'm sure that's indicative of his disability. Have mercy on someone who's never been able to see, who would have a much easier, more comfortable life if he could see. He could probably hold down a job. And the list goes on. He says, have mercy on me. Maybe that's indicative of something more. Maybe Bartimaeus, I don't know how he saw himself. Maybe he sees himself as a guilty man. Maybe he doesn't see himself as a victim. Maybe he sees himself as being guilty. In that culture, in that time, there were many people, it was very common for people to think that if someone had a disability, if someone was a cripple, if someone was blind or halt or maimed, that they had done something sinful to offend God, and that was their that was their punishment. And we can read about that in Scripture. That is not a foreign concept. So maybe he did see himself this way. And maybe that's what he means here when he cries out, have mercy on me. But somehow he imagines the goodness and kindness of Jesus. He can't see Jesus yet. But this Jesus would certainly not treat him as he deserved to be treated. It was mercy that he's seeking for. And he cries out, have mercy on me. You know, out of all these people, the rich young ruler, James and John, the other disciples, and blind Bartimaeus, the one who was literally physically blind has the best insight out of all these people. I wonder, as he sat on the road, if he heard stories and rumors about Jesus, people sharing news of miracles, of healing, and the power of Jesus and his ministry. Whatever the case, Bartimaeus gets it. He sees who Jesus is. And this is a dramatic moment in the story that's rich in meaning. That dramatic moment, excuse me, is when Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. You read that there in verse number 50. Speaking of Bartimaeus, casting away his garment. We might recall another man in another gospel who did something similar. When he picked up his mat and walked away, what, what this man is doing, he's saying, I don't need that life anymore. This is before he was healed. He comes to Jesus in faith, in full assurance. And he casts away his garment. He throws off that cloak. He leaves it behind and he goes to Jesus. Jesus was passing by for Bartimaeus. While other beggars sat still on the sidelines, while other humans had needs, Jesus passed by Bartimaeus. That man Bartimaeus was diligent. He endured. He pressed through. And then an amazing thing happens. Jesus stands still. He stops. And then everybody stops. And Jesus redirects their focus. Jesus' disciples don't seem to have time for this man. The crowd just shouts at him, be quiet, be quiet. But Jesus stops what he's doing. Jesus stood still for Bartimaeus. Again, I would invite your consideration of this growth model here that we see on on the screen in front of you. And so this is about blind Bartimaeus and about true discipleship. And number one, Jesus brings the disciples to this place, to this situation where someone has a real need, a real world need. Bartimaeus' problem to him is perhaps blindness. Maybe it's something more. From Jesus' perspective, the problem here is healing. He needs it. He hasn't had it and he needs it. And what is Jesus' solution? Restoration. What is his action? What does Bartimaeus do? 
in response. He follows Jesus. If you read other accounts of, of this story, you read that he was leaping and jumping for joy. He was excited. He was motivated. Two prominent teaching methods in Mark chapter 10, again, are conversations and questions. And Jesus engages in a very brief conversation with Bartimaeus. And Jesus asks him one question. And then Jesus, number four, shares truth that challenges the disciples. What Jesus is saying is that all people, all people are invited to follow Jesus. Jesus connects his disciples to God and to each other. And it's an interesting way that he does that. He mentions thy faith to Bartimaeus. Thy faith hath made thee whole. A connection to faith in God, to faith in Jesus. That connects them to God. But then I want to, I want to bring before your consideration here the excerpt in this text that reads where Jesus commanded him to be called. Jesus did not call him directly. He involved those other disciples, those other followers, those who scoffed at Bartimaeus, those who told him to be quiet, those who tried to silence him. He now involves them in his call, in his invitation. And so he connects them to each other. He connects them to many. And so as we close, I want us to to consider how this applies to us today. We must understand our need. We live in the arguably the greatest nation on the face of the planet in all of history. Despite your misgivings about our, our government and about our country, we, we do have problems here, and I'm not minimizing that. But arguably, we live in a privileged society where we have many, many comforts. We, we pray often, many of us pray often, that God has blessed us far above what, what we deserve, what we need, uh, beyond just, just the day-to-day needs. And so, first of all, we need to understand our need. I don't know. Maybe this is too personal for you. Maybe this makes you uncomfortable. Maybe you think that you have nothing that you need from the Lord. I hope that's not the case. And so, if Jesus were to come through here today, you'd be content to make room for him to go by without asking anything. I don't want to bother my Lord and Master. I don't don't really need anything from him today. But perhaps there are some here today who are listening to this and you have some needs. Maybe it doesn't take you long to think of those needs. They pop right into your head. You might be in need of healing today. You might be in need of love today. Maybe you need help overcoming something in your life. Maybe you need some encouragement today. Maybe you need to repent. Perhaps you are in need of forgiveness. Those are real legitimate needs. And we might have them today. Secondly, from the story of Bartimaeus, we need to cry out to God. Jesus was literally the first word on his lips. One applicable point for all of us that I want to impart is that when we do have a need, we need to cry out to the one who can fulfill that need. You know, I I probably could elaborate on, on the many times in my life. There have been many times in my life when I have had legitimate hardship, when I have had to undergo legitimate pain, and some of it was just watching other loved ones go through pain and suffering. Ugh. Some, all of us can relate in some way to that. There are many times in our lives when, when, we, when we think to ourselves, you know, this is disappointing the way things worked out. It's not the way I, I would have had it work out. That is not the time to get angry with God. You know, Bartimaeus, he could have been bitter. He could have been angry. Maybe he was to some extent. This is the time to humble 
myself and the time to cry out as Bartimaeus does. Life is going to hurt. We know that. Those of us with any experience know that. Perhaps others have hurt you. Let's not get bitter. Let's cry out to Jesus. When you have a need in your life, cry out to God. Turn to Him. Lift your voice. Finally, I would say that we must be persistent. We can read in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1. This is the very first verse in the 18th chapter of Luke about a parable to pray always. And how does the writer preface that parable? The writer says in Luke 18 verse 1, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. I want to encourage you today, cry out. Always be ready to cry out to God. Do not faint. If Bartimaeus can get the Lord's response, then we can too. Is there anyone here today who believes that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him? Is there anyone here today who believes that God is faithful and just to forgive sin? Is there anyone here today who believes that if they call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved? Is there anyone here today who believes that when the righteous cry that the Lord hears and then delivers them? Brethren, I'm going to keep on praising God. I'm going to keep on crying out to God. No matter the hardship, I'm going to keep on praying to God because I know our Heavenly Father hears me and I know He hears you. Let this be a lesson to us. We must be persistent. We must cry out. We must understand our need. Maybe we do need the paradigm shift like the disciples needed. But the invitation is for us to be like Bartimaeus. If we can help you in any way, if you desire to become a child of God and to be baptized in the watery grave of baptism, we can help you with that. If you have a legitimate need, a need of anything, and we can pray with you and for you, if you need encouragement, please make your wishes known. Come to the front. Sit on the front pew and someone will assist you as we stand and sing the invitation song.